Welcome to Philosophy AU, the show where we analyse and explore the modern world through a philosophical lens. We're going to walk through the biggest questions thoughtfully and honestly, getting back to the roots of philosophy so that we can use wisdom and knowledge to actually live a better life. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the show. And we are back here with another episode of Philosophy AU. Apologies to everyone who was <laughs> expecting to hear Josh's lovely <laughs> and very podcast-friendly voice. You've been, yeah, unfortunately stitched up with an intro by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, how you doing, Josh? Yeah, I'm doing good. Um, so, we're in your new casa, which is super exciting. Your new house down here in Geelong. Um, so, I thought it'd be fitting if you do the intro. Um, but yeah, I've been doing good. I another week of work. I'm still waiting to hear, find out about this job, which is taking forever, and it's super frustrating because I've been checking my email like five times a day. You know how it gets. Um, but got a new book in the mail yesterday, which is exciting. Uh, I think it's called the Immortality Key. It's just about like the I don't know. Is that the right right way to put it? Like the psychedelic theory of religion. Yeah, I well, I'm I'm not going to affirm what your like your question based on the book. I'm not sure like mm. you know, it's your book. Um but I guess of my of my awareness of kind of what you're speaking about. Yeah, there does kind of seem to be it's almost like a scientific attempt at explaining how religion has has arose. Mm. I guess rather than sort of the mythical, it's Yeah, I'm not sure like it's well, do you want to kind of outline it? Like, I've, you know, I'm only an introduction now and I've read, um, I guess, like a couple of reviews, but um, obviously won't do it justice. But to do my best, it's speaking to uh, psychedelics. So uh, classically, like psilocybin is going to be the main one that they talk about and maybe like some other peyote and things like that. Obviously, LSD was man-made and didn't come around until the 50s late 50s i think something like that uh, and anyway there is a theory that religion and i don't know if you say mysticism but that these things uh, were born out of psychedelic experience um, and consuming these like ancient quote-unquote plant medicines um, which is I think from what I've read, I've done a lot of reading on like drugs and psychedelics. One really strong argument for that is that, pardon me, is that uh, drugs and plant medicines have always been around in, from what we can tell, like every single culture slash society since antiquity Um, or some sort of consciousness altering mechanism has been around whether it be like breath work or sleep deprivation um but yes typically some sort of plant substance and anyway i think the crux of the argument or the crux of the book is that this sort of facilitated religious ideas um that probably along with some maybe like cognitive features or bugs like the um the hyper agency uh tendency that we have to think that like we've spoken about previously if there is some sort of cause there is a causer or if some sort of action happens that's due to 
an agent making that happen. Um, so anyway, that's sort of the idea that religion came about by way of uh, psychedelic experience through plant medicines. Um, so yeah, it's interesting so far. Yeah, and I guess some some may kind of wonder why this topic interests us, and in general, you know, we are people who are interested in conscious experience, like and altering that conscious experience. You know, we haven't probably said it explicitly on the podcast, but um, in a hypothetical universe or a parallel universe not too far from here, um, we may have quite the interest in, um, yeah, experimentation with drugs. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's that aspect of it. But from a philosophical perspective, like, we aren't just sitting... I, I guess I'll start here. There is kind of some of the, the Rogan-esque crowd who are just mm. very much like legalized drugs, make drugs everywhere, mm. um, you know, drugs are the best. Whereas mm. that's, I don't think, a stance that we can subscribe to. Mm. There's obviously nuances to it. But mm. where this interests me from a philosophical perspective is we spend a lot of time, like even in modern society, or maybe even especially so in modern society, debating whether or not... Um, you know, say religion is real. And I think that has probably been, or the, the Christian explanation of the beginning of the world has certainly been, uh, strongly discredited (laughs) by Charles Darwin and co. Mm. However, now the more Jordan Peterson esque rising has, pointed to, well, maybe religion isn't, and Jordan Peterson certainly isn't the first person to propose this, but Mm. um, a lot of modern conversation has been around, well, religion might not be literally true, but it could be useful. You know, it could be metaphorically true and have some kind of um, value for us to still believe. Yeah. And why books such as this interest me is because, well, where for like it's kind of stepping again outside of that problem it's like rather than focusing on whether religion is real or useful let's actually look at where it even maybe first arose because mm. like if the people who were writing um moral preachings and believing they'd spoken to the archangels or god or a burning bush if these experiences or lessons um were conveyed to them by the ingestion of mind-altering plants, then that's something we probably want to factor into how much moral weight we give these lessons. Mm. Um, yeah, I think I was reading something, it might have actually just been this book actually, where they were talking about a lot of the dogma behind uh, religious ideology or religious rhetoric has come from like the lack of the experiential side of religion. So uh, there was a really great quote. I wish I had it on hand, uh, but I think the effect is that you know once you you write something down and you lose that experiential side of it, that's when it becomes like a stale dogma. And this is sort of speaking to like free speech as well. A lot about what John Stuart Mill writes about, um, or he has a term something like stale dogma um, where if you don't have free speech to challenge ideas 
something just becomes a like a dead dogma or it's not an active argument anymore it's just some yeah it's not it's not living anymore it's it's mm. stopped being organic in some sense where mm. it can or even to go back to Jordan Peterson, he speaks about like dead wood. Like mm. there's, yeah, it's like burning off the dead wood and ideas really can yes, collect yes. dead wood. And that's why we need free speech to, um, yeah, help help trim and prune a little bit. Yeah. And like, again, speaking to the <clears throat> utility of religion, presuming that there is a lot of utility in religion, like you aren't necessarily aware of it because we're so disconnected from the experience of it. If it's just like based on dogmas and teachings rather than getting that firsthand experience. And anyway, this book is sort of getting at that. There is a lot of utility in a quote unquote religious or mystical experience. Um, and that, uh, psychedelic substances could facilitate that experience. Um, yeah. But what about, what about you? What have you been reading? How's uni going? Full on, obviously. Yeah, so uni's definitely been um, just consistent. Like, I've sort of said this to you off air previously and spoken to a few of my friends about it, but um, this time around going to uni, obviously I'm doing something different, and I've spoken about that on the podcast previously, but just the structure of how this course is being run is different to um, what I'd been used to previously, um, rather than that kind of... 20% 20% assessment or, you know, mid, mid SEM exam being run at week four and then having your major assessment, um, or your major assignment being due like weeks, you know, nine or something. And then your mm. end of term exam, um, end of semester exam and being sort of worth 20, 40 and 40. Mm. Um, this is just very much continual submissions, then mm. continual feedback from the teaching staff, um, all sort of building towards, an end portfolio, which is really cool because it is very much this this iterative, constant mm. feedback process. Um, but sort of the the flip side of that is just that every week something is due, mm. or e- like almost every second or third day something is due because Ooh. I'm sitting multiple, say, yeah. subjects. Yeah. So it's um yeah very much come home do something, and it's good because it's kept me focused and because yeah. like the system is literally called on track. So it is, it is yeah. keeping me on track. So it's um, like incentivizing, uh, maybe like intrinsic motivated learning, something like that. I would just even just say consistency. Yeah. Like that's, that's a massive one. Um, just mm. which we both know, like on any given day. Yeah. Sometimes like some nugget sticks out at you and it's like, oh wow, like this really mm. jarred with what I previously thought. Mm. And you, you recognize you've made some kind of, step in your learning but typically typically each day you go to bed not not actually knowing if you know much more than the day you did before yeah but then at the end of the week you're just like oh wow like i can write um statements in predicate logic now for Mm. example like speaking for me or i can actually write a program now that i couldn't previously Mm. and that consistency really is um useful for that slow kind of osmotic process of knowledge acquisition so are you saying it's more like you have more tangible metrics on your progress rather than that sort of really slow um 
subliminal learning that tends to happen? Uh, I'm not speaking personally about um, metrics for my own awareness. Like I think I've now been through the learning process enough where I can um, safely just presume that the knowledge acquisition will Mm. occur regardless of whether I'm feeling it or not. Mm. What I'm more so speaking about is the constraints of the system are set up so that I can't just cram something. Like rather than having one assignment due at week six where I can Mm. stuff around for five weeks and then cram all this stuff into my brain Mm. and spit it back out, it's no, you're going to have to do this at least twice a week for 10 weeks Mm. in some sense to pass this course. And that repeated exposure and just Mm. consistent immersion, I think is, it's difficult to fit in, say, with where life is at for me currently. Mm. But I am, I'm convinced, for lack of a better word, that this will be a better way for me to learn. Mm. It's really like a constrained model of, you know, like the constrained vision, like a constrained model of, um, you know, just taking into account human nature, which is cool. Yeah, no, I think that's, it's exactly right. Like it's, it really is trying to counter Mm. the luxuries that I think university students have flouted for Mm. years slash decades of just partying for five weeks (laughs) and then having a miserable life for one. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it really is like, uh, facilitates and nourishes actual learning by the sounds of it. Um, But what else, what have you been reading as well? Yeah, so I'm reading, um, still reading Cryptonomicon, um, but that's probably not worth mentioning because I'll be reading that until (laughs) the end of the year at least. Um, But yeah, still always really enjoying that. Like there's something really cool about um, historical fiction. Like it's not Mm. exactly historically accurate, but just even playing with historical figures Mm. and then speculative ideas. Like Stephenson is... Yeah, he really does deserve the reputation, I think, um, just from what I've read of his so far. But the other book I was talking about is um, is Mindstorms by Seymour Papert. Um, yeah, someone who who writes or is very strongly influenced by Jean Piaget, the developmental psychologist who sort of described the acquisition of more complex thinking in mm. children. Mm. Um, but what Papert speaks about um, a little bit more is how we develop models for thinking. And he speaks about his own experience of um, learning to play with gears. Like gears were this, as in, you know, like gears that rotate, physical gears, mechanical gears. And he speaks about how his early learnings in mathematics were extremely influenced by his intimate knowledge of gears and Mm. he was not forced to learn about gears. Like he was just drawn to them. Mm. And then he hung, he hung mathematical knowledge on the hooks that those, um, yeah, previous experiences with gears had given him. And Mm. he speaks about how he thinks computers can be a very revolutionary tool in improving the, um, the learning and mental scaffolding that that children um, acquire. And, yeah, he sort of slightly differs from Piaget in the sense that Piaget described uh, sort of like a series of stages that children Mm. go through. But what Papert outlines is he thinks 
those stages are much more variable and the way in which children move through them is based on the culture around them. Mm. And the sort of example he gives is like, you take a parent who who might be a physicist for mm. um, a living, while obviously that the child of that physicist is going to have um, similar genetics to them, but that person is just going to create an intellectual culture around the home and expose the child mm. to mathematics and things like that first and things like that for this <laughs> podcast for um as far Can as i'm it. counting uh but man i was on i was on a good roll there <laughs> yeah. um but he speaks about how you know that that child will grow up to be say mathphilic as opposed mm. to math phobic yeah just because of how the culture of the house mm. is created and it's not just that kids go through stages of learning that go from, you know, one step to the other. But, mm. yeah, it is influenced by the the culture around them. Um, it's, as I sort of said to you, it's a complex book and I, mm. I think there are some very important ideas in there um, just from my very brief reading so far. But um, shout out to Patrick Collison who strongly recommends this book and I have nothing but respect for, mm. for him. So, yeah, it comes on, on good authority. Beautiful. Um, well, yeah, so today we are going to sort of do part two of what we did last week uh, where we talked on mental models. Um, we unfortunately neglected a theory of cognition, um, but that's going to fit nicely into today's discussion anyways, where we're going to talk about, um, I guess, the other side of mental models, which is like the cognitive biases and you know, perhaps like logical fallacies or, you know, bugs in our cognitive software or system. Um, and then, you know, obviously using examples and, um, yeah, practical situations to get out of these bugs, which is, I guess, utilizing those mental models um, to be able to recognize these, uh, these cognitive distortions or um, traps that we often fall into. Um, so did you want to start by uh, reading through that delicious quote? Yeah, so I'm just going to read a passage here from, yeah, I think it's actually the very first um, paragraph in the book. But the book is Judgment Under Uncertainty, Heuristics and Biases. And it's edited by Daniel Kahneman, Paul Slovic and Amos Tversky. Now, R.I.P. Tversky. Yeah, the um, the late Amos Tversky. So, um, you know, listeners might immediately know the name Daniel Kahneman or some of them might go, oh, I recognize that name, why do I know it? And that's because um, Kahneman wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow in 2011, I believe. Something like that. Um, yeah, and that very much popularized the... Uh, popularized and summarized the heuristics and biases literature, which started actually uh, about 60 years before. So it kicked off probably around um, like the 50s and 60s. And I'll, I'll quote um, something sort of addressing that in a second, but I'll just read this, this first um, book and, uh, sorry, section. And, but like this book in general is a more, academic and deeper look at mm. um, what 
Kahneman goes over in Thinking Fast and Slow. So if, yeah, anyone enjoyed that, then they might enjoy this. Um, no, that's not the page I was looking for. That's disappointing. Sorry. Bear with me, dear listeners. Okay, here we are. End quote. Many decisions are based on beliefs concerning the likelihood of uncertain events such as the outcome of an election, the guilt of a defendant, or the future value of the dollar. These beliefs are usually expressed in statements such as, I think that, chances are, or it is unlikely that, and so forth. Occasionally, beliefs concerning uncertain events are expressed in numerical forms as odds or subjective probabilities. What determines such beliefs? How do people assess the probability of an uncertain event or the value of an uncertain quantity? In this book, we explore that people rely on a limited number of heuristic principles which reduce complex tasks of assessing probabilities and predicting value to simpler judgmental operations. In general, these heuristics are quite useful, but sometimes they lead to severe and systematic errors. And, end quote. And these, yeah, these systematic errors are what we're going to try and focus on a little bit more today. As sort of Josh outlined, we spoke about mental models and kind of, let's say, mental models are, you know, apps which you can run you know, sort of, or kick into gear, execute programs, which you can execute to try and um, fuel kind of good ideas or better intuitions about something. But yeah, today we are talking about the the other side of that coin, Mm. that where the the systematic ways in which we go wrong. Mm. So then perhaps we'll start with like, yeah, that a bit of a theory of cognition or a a larger picture, focus and then we'll get down into some more so nitty-gritty stuff um so again going back to Kahneman Tversky again the very well-known book Thinking Fast and Slow they outline uh I guess a framework or way to think about uh the human cognition um and again we were just talking off air about we I don't think that they uh were the first people to speak about thinking in this this manner, um, but they certainly popularized it. Um, so they use the nomenclature system one and system two thinking. So system one is essentially uh, that really, I guess, like reactive, evolutionarily, evolutionary, um, maybe not monkey mind, but the uh, what's very the, evolutionary primed is the yeah. way that I would describe it. Um, did you want to? continue I no, you can continue on with that okay so um in essence we have system one and system two as josh said system one is very autonomous mm. intuitive automatic and it tends to be mostly beneath um conscious perception if not mm. entirely and intuition is very much about pattern recognition like the reason you get a strong idea about something is because something in your subconscious or just yeah beneath subconscious makes it sound a little sort of freudian for people Mm. who aren't um (laughs) sort of super familiar with this terminology but basically just like there are processes in your brain that the 
sort of safer ones to run mm. in some sense, like that you don't actually need to monitor. Like mm. these are just automated processes. Yeah. That there's something in those automated processes that picked up a pattern and it shoves yeah. that into conscious experience going, hey, like this looks like a good thing. Hey, this looks mm. like a bad thing. And yeah, we, we see this all over the place. Mm. Um, I think it's like important to, and perhaps you're going to get there anyway, but just to stick in here that it's very easy to, when talking about system one and system two and, you know, logical or rational thinking versus intuitive thinking to create this like false dichotomy where system two is really great and system one is, um, you know, a, something you ought to avoid at all costs. However, I guess evolutionary theory would tell us that if things evolved and adapted, they have done so because, um, or they've, they've evolved due to adaptive purposes because they are useful. Um, otherwise, you know, they probably wouldn't have made it through billions of years of evolution. So there is utility to system one. Um, and we ought not to think about it as good and bad, um, because system two is great. So it's, more accurate and precise however it's costly that that precision comes at a cost however the other side of that system one um it's very quick low cost however you're sacrificing accuracy and precision with that low cost yeah and maybe to give um some some kind of sort of examples it's like let's say you are um, you know, you're the CEO of a company or something like that. You need to make some kind of big executive decision and what you can do or what effectively happens in your brain is you ask, say, a lower level employee to go and run the sums and do the calculations and then bring it back to you. And then what the, the option that you have is to just go, do I save time and just go with the sums that, you know, this worker brought back and we can name that worker say intuition or Mm. do I take the time to check the sums and run through the calculations myself which Mm. as you outlined takes time but the person the CEO in this instance they have say a higher level of skill and they may actually do the sums and equations to a better extent and that's that's effectively the the constant trade-off that we go through Mm. in a cognitive sense because we don't just have one problem arising at one time. We have mm. a billion and ones, a billion and one problems existing at mm. any one instance. And I guess you want to you want to look at the costs of I guess like making a wrong or right decision in this instance. So, if there is a low cost to potentially being wrong, uh, you know perhaps you'd be more than okay with just relying on say like a system one or or not kick into action your system two thinking. So just like looking outside and be like, oh, there's a few clouds, you know, it's not a massive cost if it ends up, um, you know, raining and you don't bring your umbrella. Um, however, if there's like a larger cost to making that, you utilizing a heuristic and not not utilizing your system two thinking, then, then you do want to kick that into action um, and pay the cost of that extra cognitive demands um, because you're going to, yeah, avoid some sort of larger cost of being wrong. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of like if you're just going to walk around the block and you're like, oh, should I bring a jumper? Mm. And, you know, Josh goes to me, oh, no, it's not It's not supposed to rain today, even though I can see some clouds. I'm, 
I can, for the most part, just walk around the block. But if Josh and I are about to go on a five-hour hike and I see clouds and Josh goes, no, it's not supposed to rain today, mm. I should probably go, oh, actually, I'm yeah, going to check the weather. I'm going to do these additional calculations just to be sure because mm. if I'm wrong in that case, I'm now going to spend five hours in the rain or up to mm. five hours. Yeah. So, yeah, that's simplistic example of system one and two. But, yeah, again, just as Josh outlined, system two isn't always better. It mm. just has capabilities that system one doesn't mm. and the same um, holds in the other direction. Like, there's no way system two can be as fast as system one. Mm. And that's the price of, of accuracy, yeah. speed, trade-off. Yeah. So, I mean, we were talking about this off air, um, but it's interesting to explore, like, how does is it possible for one to consciously bring in system two or like what is that process and then maybe this gets us into that um tri model of <laughs> tri what was the tripartite tripartite model of uh cognition that the other gentleman espoused yeah so um what josh is speaking about here is so this is a bit of a hobby hobby horse for me um this kind of area um so Keith Stanovich was the cognitive psychologist who proposed the tripartite model of cognition. Um, and I believe he actually was the first person to reference kind of system one and system two, mm. though he didn't actually call it that. It was maybe, you know, system A and system B mm. or whatever it was. Um, so what Keith Stanovich speaks about in his tripartite model is we have the you know, autonomous mind, um, which is, say, system one, and that's, you know, it's fast, automatic, and comes to its conclusions. Then what he does that's different from system one and system two or dual process theory is he splits system two into uh, two additional, or sorry, yeah, one additional and two parts. So we have the algorithmic mind and then the reflective mind. And it's the combination of the algorithmic mind and the reflective mind that makes system two. What the important distinction here is, is that Stanovich talks about how we have those automatic processes. Then we have the processes that are kicked into gear um, when we require calculation. But then we need something that controls and is mm. something that is... Um, that is pattern-seeking in a way that it recognizes patterns that have led us astray before. Mm. So while um, the autonomous mind is very good at pattern recognition, then jumping to conclusions, the reflective mind is sort of constantly keeping track of, oh, well, actually that didn't go well previously. Mm. So I need to watch out for that pattern mm. that looks promising and actually ends up disastrous. So it is kind of the... Um, the um, think not thinking a very good word, but is the director of both mm. um, the autonomous and the algorithmic mind. And yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I think um, from sort of a you know, cognitive science perspective and just because um, a little bit of it at well, it, it, it does map onto some of my beliefs about things such as mindfulness and meditation enhancing mm. rationality. Yeah. I can't remember exact um, evidence off the top of my head, but I, I do recall going through the book and going, oh, actually, 
yeah, wow, this has some some relatively strong connections to mm. that other sort of interest of mine. So to relate it back to the example about going for a walk, so uh, the reflective mind part of it would be the part of you that's saying, um, you know, hang on, maybe we should step back and look at a different approach. And then the algorithmic mind part of it would be you deciding to look at the weather as opposed to just like looking at the other side of the sky, like picking the actual method and the actual approach um, to overcome that system one fault, I guess is the right way to say it. Yeah, so the reflective mind might sort of um, activate or, or jump into jump into gear and go, hang on, like Josh is our friend and he wouldn't mm. purposefully lead us astray, but he may, you know, he may be wrong here. He's been and known then, to be wrong many a time. He's been known to be wrong before. Um, <laughs> unlike his co-host, which apparently <laughs> is, you know, I think, think on a track record of 100% straight correct decisions in entire life. <laughs> um, but that's a digression. Which leads us nicely into biases. <laughs> <laughs> um, then the, say, reflective mind would then pass, say, duties over to the algorithmic mm. mind, which solves problems. Mm. It just, it's stepwise and it, it has a, a series of steps that it goes through um, and yeah so what to summarize I think something very important from Stanovich is he talks about how intelligence tests really only measure our algorithmic capacity mm. you know yes we might look at um, like if anyone's seen a typical um, intelligence test IQ test you might have some kind of abstract pattern and then you've got mm. to fill in the gap. Like, is it, mm. you know, is it a diamond with a square in the middle, the color blue, or is it, yeah. And it's it's often quite tricky. Um, but what, yes, Danovich talks about and the book, The Intelligence Trap by David Robson, Robinson, I think it is. Um, he, he popularizes this in a more sort of, for lay public consumption, speaks about how the more important things are those metacognitive abilities, mm. those reflective mind mm. um, style traits, which is, hang on, I could be wrong here. How should I go about problem solving this? Yeah. Not just jumping to conclusions. And yeah, that's, that's things like yeah. epistemic humility and um, perspective taking and different mental models that mm. that we've spoken about a little bit already yeah it's like uh you know getting to a location fast like if your algorithmic mind is a 350 horsepower engine but you've got no reflective mind to be like oh you've got to go this way it doesn't matter if you're going 200 kilometers per hour in the wrong direction you're still not going to get to where you want to go so i think it's extremely important this is yeah again like largely our hobby horse of the last couple of years is trying to blend these different sort of Sam Harris-esque uh, ways of going through life, um, you know, having a, a really, not focus on meditation per se, but um, a focus on awareness and presence and how that complements um, our cognition and rational thinking, um, but still building up building up your horsepower of mental models um, and problem solving uh, and you're just, your, your cognitive abilities 
but again, still really emphasizing the fact that you need to be able to step back and figure out which tool to use in which instance. Um, and that, that is a, a large part of it as well. Um, anything to add on that? No, I think like I had things sparking off there, but none of them were actually important. Like really, we, we could continue fun, yeah, <laughs> bouncing <laughs> back and forth. Yeah. But um, yeah, we might actually move into the, the biases conversation part yeah. of this discussion, if you like. Um, and maybe we'll just kick it off with an, an easy one, I guess, like um, confirmation bias is something that everyone will be quite familiar with. Um, it, it really is just... Uh, having a preconceived idea or, or prior and then looking at the evidence or trying to do extra work to come to that conclusion that you've already favoured in your own mind. Um, and so, again, I think it, it's extremely important to um, just try and be aware of our own biases and this is... I guess what you talked about in that podcast we were on recently where uh, what is the bias where you can recognize other people's biases but not your own? Bias blind spot. Yeah, so the bias blind spot where um, to get a bit meta about all this, like it's all good and well to talk about biases and our mental models um, but and recognize them in other people but again, it's extremely important to look in the mirror and you know, turn that sharp sword against yourself and try and, to the best of your ability, try and figure out where your blind spots are, um, which perhaps by the very nature of it, you can't do because they're blind spots. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that is confirmation bias. Yeah, so I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent slash monologue here. Uh, we'll, start, we'll start with everyone is biased. Um, mm. And there's actually really, I think it's in the introduction to... Map and Territory by Eliezer Kowski. I think it's um, the author that writes the the introduction, though not not Yudkowsky himself. He speaks about how it's not it's not that humans are biases, or no, sorry, it's not that humans are biased. We are biases. Like a mind is an instrument for mm. um, like bending in information, bending information in certain ways, and giving certain proclivities. It's yeah. It's not that we have imperfect minds. It's like they're they're quite good at what they were designed for, mm. just not sort of optimal from an inter- instrumental perspective. Mm. So I'll start with that. Just that, yeah. We everyone is biased to some extent. The other thing I'll say is, uh, I forget which study this, I think it was in economics paper. Um, it's quite old, but basically knowing about, knowing about biases isn't immediately useful. So Mm. it's very, very sort of, um, typical experience of reading, thinking fast and slow Mm. is to now have your taxonomy of biases Mm. and, and think that, oh, because now that I know confirmation bias and, you know, X, Y, and Z of all the biases mm. that I'm not um, going to succumb to them. But I think the finding is it's either it either doesn't help or it may hinder once you have an initial awareness of biases. Kind of very stereotypical Dunning-Kruger effect. Mm. But what they <laughs> what they do um, 
what I think a follow-up finding was, was I think it was on a study of accountants and I'm drawing this up from long-term memory. So again, bear with me here. Some of the details may be um, not exactly correct, but say like teaching accountants where they can go wrong and just giving them awareness and a terminology of where they go wrong doesn't actually make them any better at accounting. Mm. What is a good measure of um, good accounting is say how many courses and seminars and things they attend it's basically the effort of trying to get better at accounting Mm. makes you better not just the knowledge of where you go wrong in accounting Mm. so the same kind of reasoning probably applies to biases and um errors of that nature like just because you read thinking fast and slow and you can list off a dozen biases off the top of your head and point them out in other people Mm. doesn't actually mean you're any less likely to succumb to them. It's probably that constant process of seeking to be better, seeking Mm. to minimize them, seeking to get closer and closer to normative um, judgment and choice Mm. that that is what actually makes you better in the long run. Mm. That's like a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, that that common just throwaway epithet of, oh, everyone's, we've all got our biases because it's really hollow and it's sort of, it's like uh, a signal of like, I'm aware of how flawed we are without making any attempt at fixing the flaw. That's at least what I find that statement in a lot of people to say. It's like, oh, or or it's just like a, a intellectual nihilism where it's like, oh, we're all biased. There's no, there's no use in even trying to approximate anything closer to truth or rationality. Yeah, I find both of those extremely frustrating. Like, as you said, it's just, you're not, you're not increasingly wise or like, you're not exceptionally wise because you can say everyone mm. is flawed. Mm. So, yeah, like you honestly need mm. the, the brain of a four-year-old to we- recognize the yeah. imperfections in the world. But it's, yeah, it's probably more that second point that, that really frustrates me, that the the suggestion that all levels of imperfection are equivalent. Mm. Mm. And that's yeah. just, like, absolutely not true. Yeah, There are degrees to which you can be wrong. You can be mm. way, way mm. more wrong um, and you can be less wrong. And mm-hmm. it's the endeavour to be less wrong um shout out out to less wrong (laughs) yeah uh so you can pretty much turn off this podcast now and go and read every essay on less wrong if you like but yeah if you'd prefer an audio version stick around um but yeah that's that is what the writings on less wrong are about is yeah becoming increasingly or yeah decreasingly wrong yeah um but maybe it's just like uh maybe it's just an annoyance because in my mind, you know, there's, I guess, presumed implicit knowledge when I'm when we're communicating, and it's almost like, really, do you have to bring that up? Like, that's so obvious. But you know, that borderlines on, uh, I don't know, arrogance or pretension or intellectual pretension. Yeah, I'm actually. <laughs> I probably can't have this conversation <laughs> without shouting out to Ilyasa like a thousand times. But that is. He he writes it. Um, 
he writes a post about pretending to be wise and that is mm. like exactly the concept he's speaking about yeah, it's just like right. that the kind of philosophy that we often speak about that that we're trying to not do yeah. it's just like that yeah. philosophical sort of the actual mental masturbation that yeah. achieves nothing but just yeah that saying things that sound increasing or like exceptionally profound mm. and actually convey no useful information mm. at all or it's like how, how we've talked about contrarians for the sake of contrarianism it's like you're not like and again we have addressed this the nuances of it like yes there's probably some utility in having people that are just contrarian for the sake of it however like to look at it in a vacuum you're not applying any other alternative um or any actual anything actually useful you're just again like pretending to be wise by highlighting oh this is wrong i'm going against the grain here but then that's all you're really saying yeah this like a scene from the office actually really captured this um this concept really well for me the other day like uh, you haven't seen the office from what of the office from the office you've seen the office yeah okay so when um when Dwight runs his like fake fire drill and just like the whole <laughs> the whole office goes well actually not fake fire drill like a fire yeah. drill is yeah, yeah, yeah. but say Drake uh, Dwight's version of the fire drill and Stanley has heart attack <laughs> and you know Dwight's pulled into corporate with Michael and like they're dragging Dwight over the coals and saying like how could you think this mm. was acceptable and Dwight kind of does the whole well not all good ideas are, or like many good ideas weren't appreciated in their time. And that's kind of like yes. the the contrarian for the sake of contrarian attitude. It's mm. just, oh, like, mm. yeah, I won't even get stuck down this rabbit hole because I'm going to then succumb massively to confirmation bias. But <laughs> I will, I'm going to follow up on what you said and yeah. um, probably nitpick a little. Mm-hmm. So you spoke about doing additional work in order to say make something true in confirmation bias style i would say confirmation bias is actually about doing less work often Mm. often biases are about less work and because we are cognitive misers we we don't overthink when we can underthink Mm. and that's often why i think you and i both push back on the concept of Oh, I'm overthinking it. I was like, mm. you don't even know the appropriate <laughs> amount of thinking that's required. Yeah. Like, just stop there. Shout out to not overthinking. <laughs> yeah, shout out to not overthinking. Um, but what confirmation bias I think actually is, is we try and test a hypothesis in a manner that produces a yes. Okay. And mm. one of the one of the um, archetypal kind of studies in this area was getting students to try and guess a pattern of numbers. And I would say, um, you know, the numbers one, two, and three follow this pattern. Mm. And I would say another example is the numbers six, seven, and eight follow the pattern. Oh, this is from methods of yeah, so it's, this is written about um, in Methods of Rationality. Um, and a uh, final example is 21, 22, and 23 follow this pattern. Mm. Like, what is the pattern? And then students then submit their, um, yeah, their proposed patterns to the researchers slash teacher. And 
what we find or like they submit, sorry, numbers and they say, oh, is this, mm. does this fit the pattern? Does this mm. fit the pattern? And then once they feel like they've gathered enough evidence um, after the, the researcher slash teacher say yes or no, yeah, the student um, proposes their pattern. And what you find is students don't try and break the pattern. Mm. They're not trying random sets of numbers. They're not trying, they've gone, oh, pattern detected, numbers going up by one. Um, so I'm going to try keep proposing. Does, oh, 98, 99 and 100 fit the pattern? Does, you know, 50, 51, 52? And the researchers keep saying yes. And the students mm. gathering more and more evidence yeah. going, yep. And then they say numbers going up by one. And then it turns out that the pattern is just any set of increasing numbers mm. or something like that. Mm. Um, and that, that is confirmation bias. It's mm. just only checking what's good about something or, yeah. you know, fitting your own personal theory. Yeah. To add into that, uh, I think they actually call it the hypothesis testing game, which I think is a useful addition because that is one of the common issues like in academia or like uh, that can be a common issue that people run into when say like trying to do quote-unquote science is that uh, they're not trying to falsify the hypothesis they're trying to confirm it um, and yeah that's like a I guess like a street version of that the confirmation bias that we all trying to confirm our, our hypotheses around about the world as opposed to perhaps the quicker way is to just try and falsify it um, and then work from there um, but you did bring up Dunning-Kruger literally right after I wrote it down. Um, but I, do you know, like, that's there's a lot of discussion around it. Has it been, like, debunked or something like that? Um, I've heard discussions around it either being debunked or maybe it's just, like, more nuanced to the idea, but I don't actually know. Yeah, so um, my understanding is there's just more nuance to it. it it could have well to be say debunked like maybe it just wasn't replicated in you know mm. some follow-up studies i'm not sure um but i guess the way dunning kruger is often presented this, i don't think this will actually come across extremely well on a podcast so it's, it's going to be difficult but it's mm. images of the dunning kruger effect I think are in say relative terms and it's just that the the beginner thinks they've done relative like they think they've done really well mm. and the intermediate thinks they've done poorly and the expert thinks they've done you know quite well and so you end up with this sort of u-shaped um curve mm. whereas you actually still see um increases from beginner to intermediate to advanced it's just what the dunning-kruger curve represents is their misjudgment of um their own efforts it's like the the intermediate still does better than the beginner but Mm. the intermediate just underestimates how well Mm. they've done and the beginner typically overestimates Mm. but again yeah the beginner uh, sorry the intermediate even though they underguess they still do better overall. Mm. So the crux of it still likely holds, which is just the idea that, um, you know, the, the more knowledge you acquire, the 
the more you realize that there is more knowledge to acquire and the the novice you know it's that old saying a little bit of knowledge is such a dangerous thing because they learn a couple of things and then they feel like they have a hold on it but then i guess to get into it more there is that other side of it of um like imposter syndrome which can be quite a crippling thing where even once you are gaining quite a bit of knowledge that might be crippling where you're not confident to say like teach it or practice it um but yeah again i think the the central crux of the dunning kruger effect that uh the more knowledge that you gain the more you realize that there is to know um is really fundamental and foundational yeah i think this actually ties back in another with one of those kind of pretending to be wise moments where Mm. people are often, you know, positioning themselves or portraying themselves as, as wise and enlightened because like, I know nothing. So (laughs) because, you know, people on that end of the Dunning-Kruger curve, you know, think they don't know anything. It's like, well, that's not actually the case. What you just get is people that know more better calibrate their knowledge. Mm. They're just way, way more aware both of how much, or they're more aware of their inability to know mm. how much there is to be known, but they still have a really good idea about what they know quite well. Like you can't be a really skilled heart surgeon and go into work going, oh, I'm not, like, I don't mm. know, I don't know about yeah. this. Like, you know, I, yeah. look at me, I'm so <laughs> epistemically humble. Yeah. Like you still need conviction in what you've seen to be true time and time again. Mm. So... Yeah, it's just, I think the Dunning-Kruger curve almost just uh, like generates more confusion than necessary. Mm. To me, it should be just an inverse slope of Mm. just arrogance, basically. Uh, Like, Mm. yeah, like a a slope that starts high and just like as you are less um, knowledgeable about something, you're Mm. increasingly arrogant about how much you know about it and then just as you learn more and more you become less arrogant but you mm. still believe you know more mm. it's just your arrogance being the disconnect between what you know and what you think you know yeah yeah a lot of and again like a lot of this has roots in self-awareness like that's where like knowing knowing these cognitive biases um again like it's it's not going to be the fix like you still well for one it relates back to the previous week's episode where okay well if you know what's wrong or a, a trap we fall into you still need a map to make your way out of that trap um but again that's where the, like the self-awareness largely comes into it is just like recalibrating everything um do you have another one off the top of your head you want to move to? No, you can you can see the screen, oh you can direct. <laughs> I'll just um, sit here and take pot shots and drop intellectual <laughs> three-pointers from the corner. Oh, smooth. Uh, so, I think we... So, survivorship bias and sunk cost fallacy are sort of two that might come hand in hand. Um, so, survivorship bias is just the... I guess the idea that you're only seeing things that have survived by very nature of that. So people, a common one is with the arts, right? Um, You know, you, you only see the successful actors by the very nature of successful actors are acting in movies. 
Um, so you're neglecting to see everyone else that has failed. Uh, or this is a common idea in entre- entrepreneurialism. Um, you're only really seeing uh, the successful entrepreneurs or with authors. You're not seeing the millions of authors that have failed to write their books. You're just seeing millions of authors that have written books. Um, so I guess it creates this false sense of um, maybe like a false base rate of success where you see all these people succeeding but you fail to see everyone else that has failed. Um, what do you want to say more about that? Yeah, so I was actually explaining this to some friends today. So um, shout out to, to Wooly and Laura. Um, I don't think they're listeners of the podcast, unfortunately. So um, need to <laughs> get those not? shares get up, on. people. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> uh, so yeah, as you mentioned, survivorship bias is, is a subsample or a subpopulation of a larger population that has survived some kind of trial. And I think the arts is a, is a good place to start. Like we could, or importantly, what's important that it's a subpopulation is because it might, you might actually draw inverse, the inverse conclusion. Like you might not just be say slightly wrong by looking at a subpopulation, but you might be mm like directly opposite to what you should be thinking. So let's say like all the best books um, or the best books, you know, across history tend to be longer. So you might think I'm going to write a really long book because, you know, books such as like War and Peace and, you know, these really mammoth books tend to be the most highly recognized. So you set out aiming to, to write a long book, but that's just because they're the ones that are still spoken about. Like the worst books are probably long books as well. Mm. It's, it's much easier to write a really good and, or sorry, it's yeah. Just like writing a longer book just exaggerates whatever skill went into involved in creating it. Like if you, if you are someone like Leo Tolstoy, who has a really complex idea to get across the fact that it's a large book and you can capture people's attention for that long is why it's such a a well-recognized book. But there's been books that have been 1,500 pages long that have just been forgotten about because they should have been a blog post. Mm. they just really horrible books. So, again, that's a bit of a survivorship bias. But I think actually a really salient example for people is the way that survivorship bias was actually discovered. And it was... World War II, um, I think Kahneman actually talks about this in Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, But basically, um, I don't know if there was additional funding or um, something like that, but the Air Force worked out they either had some additional money or they could make their planes a bit heavier without significantly impacting their performance or whatever, a mix of the two. And so the question became, where do we put the additional armor on the plane? And, you know, the intuitive... So what they did was they surveyed, say, all the planes and looked at, um, you know, where the bullet holes were. And it turns out that, say, 80% of all the bullet holes on the plane surveyed were in the tail and the wings. Mm. So the intuitive answer was going, well... Yeah, we're going to put the extra armor on the wings and the tail of the plane. Mm. But then I believe the 
um, I forget the mathematician's name. Because um, it's vital information. It's a, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry to all those one listener out there who actually cares about the, the mathematician's name. No, I'm just um, But yeah, it was the mathematicians that were aiding the mm. war effort that said, hang on, this is the exact opposite conclusion to draw. Mm. You have just surveyed the planes that are coming back from conflict mm. and found that the majority of the bullet holes is in the tail and the wings. That means you should actually put the additional armor on the hull of the plane because planes that are shot in the hull are the ones that aren't returning to mm. be surveyed. Mm. So that concept is survivorship bias and we see this with um, elite athletes speaking about their dieting protocols. Mm. We see it in um, people probably like talking about surviving cancer and things like that on, you know, today, tonight and think like you've got all Mm. these weird, complex unknowns within society, all like these things that people want such as increased athletic performance or to get really lean Mm. or to survive cancer or to just make a ton of money Mm. and then you've got the survivors talking about how they achieved it and that might be the direct opposite to what someone should be doing Mm. yeah it's a similar similar concept to before when we're speaking about confirmation bias where they're only focusing on the positives whereas you can probably just short circuit that whole thing and just look at the people that have failed look at you know what they did and why they failed not that that is going to be the answer but perhaps it's a lot more informative if you can find a common thread in that um obviously there's a lot of things that will come into play another few little ideas that that brings up is um you know like appealing to authority or um you know maybe like the halo effect as well um where I don't know, we're perhaps like ignoring the evidence and say looking at or like letting our perspective be distorted by the actual person saying the information rather than the content of the information. So going like the elite athlete example is amazing because that's so, so common um, where, you know, you'll see some AFL player espousing uh uh, ketogenic diets or you know whatever this or that method and then because we we have them up on a pedestal in society and especially in Australia you know we think that oh the content of what that person said must be true and accurate and effective because of who that person is um, now obviously there's that other side of it where uh, I don't know what, what would you call the legitimacy in um, the appeal to authority that we need to be aware of. So like legitimately having a PhD and then listening to that person on their domain specific opinion um, is maybe like a necessary or useful appeal to authority. Oh yeah. I think, I think what this, I don't know if there's actually a good name for this, but I Mm. think this is, it's just an example of a heuristic. Mm. Like it is just, it's so heuristics are like a rule of thumb for approximating an answer. Mm. And the sort of simple simple analogy or example that it was used to teach to me is like, you know, let's say you're a parent and you've got a sick child. Mm. You can use the heuristic of, I'm going to take them down to the the doctor, the local GP, 
and like that's hopefully going to help solve my problem or at least like get a approximate a truer answer or i can spend all this time on google trying to work out Mm. the answer for myself like we use Mm. heuristics and correct appeal to authority Mm. all the time like taking your child to the gp when they are sick is the correct um yeah use of the appeal to authority method and this Mm. is where logic is actually so much more complex than the instagram version that gets Mm shared around where you know again that like that i've read thinking fast and slow Mm. or half of thinking fast and slow now i'm going to talk about how much i know about biases and logic like Mm. there are correct implementation of these Mm. um often fallacious methods um so yeah that was probably a little bit Mm. lateral to what you were saying um but something that funny kind of like sprung to mind is when you're talking about um footballers preaching about the ketogenic diet like for me there's like in my own mind just because i have so many personal jokes with myself like i just call this the golden globes phenomenon because like after the golden Mm. globes happens or the oscars or something Mm. like that so often like some actor has gone up there and spoken about Mm. global warming or Mm. something like that or just like what we should be doing for honestly like some of them are really important issues like yeah um but just like something that is extremely hot in the media yeah. at the moment. And they go up there and it's just like, oh my God, like mm. you get f- like <laughs> you get filmed for a living. Like people yeah. <laughs> record video footage of you for a living yeah. and you're speaking about climate change or like sex mm. trafficking. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like in a, yeah, the important point there is like in a pseudo-technical or normative ways like because obviously advocacy and just raising general awareness is one thing um but yeah needing domain specific knowledge um is extremely important and i think that's sort of the crux of um the appeal to authority is that it's it's legitimate if it's domain specific um so again you're going to a phd in nutrition to talk about uh, the ketogenic diet as opposed to just some footy player who perhaps like dropped out in year 10 to play footy. Yeah, and maybe, tell me if you agree about this, but I think one of the massive lessons that I learned from um, our you know previous careers in the health and fitness industry is like there are legitimate or like not legitimate differences because I guess I'm, I'm always aware that... Um, individual differences are exaggerated okay so like when you've got some people talk about oh i can't lose weight like calorie balance doesn't work for me it's like no i'm sorry like physics does work for you Mm -hmm. however individual differences are really important yeah and they're just misunderstood yeah so many people overblow them but some so many people undervalue them Mm. and the point i'm getting to is like every problem is individualistic. Mm. Like even if you have stage two brain cancer and there's been tens of thousands of people that have had stage two brain cancer previously Mm. and you go to the cancer specialist who has been, you know, helping people, you know, try and treat and overcome the exact same cancer, like that is not a guarantee that this problem can be solved. Mm. There's just... Yeah, like there are individual differences 
in every problem. Hmm. You want to locate someone with domain-specific knowledge because that can help minimize the chance of um, unideal Hmm. events or mistakes or errors. But there is no such thing as, say, like perfect knowledge on a subject. Yeah. I guess, or not even perfect knowledge because... You know, we've, we've experienced this as practitioners where people come to us and it's like, oh, this is your job. Like, mm. why can't you say, help me lose weight? Or why yeah. can't you make me better? This yeah. is your job. But what you've just got is better rules of thumb than that person yeah. to help you try and find an answer. Mm. You're just an investigator in, you know, some sense of the word. You're just more skilled at finding out mm. useful information in that area. Yeah, it, it- highlights the the calibration problem which i've spoken about where i think a lot of tensions and issues and failures stem from is just not calibrating things properly or not giving as much weight or not giving sorry the right amount of weight to things as they should have um and because i just want to caveat because something came up in my mind after i made that remark of just the uh you know, not putting like academic knowledge on too much of a pedestal or not like making that the, the be all end all is the appropriate way to state it. Um, that, okay. So I think it's quite clear, like from all our conversations, we have somewhat of a bias towards, um, intellectualism or academic knowledge or, you know, quote unquote book knowledge, but that goes with the understanding that we're not, completely disregarding other types of knowledge um, like anecdotes or experiential knowledge or lived experience um, we we well understand and I well understand that those things are important um, but we just calibrate them right the right amount or at least you know from what we can approximate the right amount um, because I think some people and you come across these people that all they think it is about is, someone's experience or someone's lived experience and you know they think oh well what is your theory like i've actually experienced this thing that would be putting like too much weight into like that type of experience so i think it's important to like weigh things correctly where say like book knowledge or academic knowledge um isn't the be all end all but it is a very very large part of the pie um, and then something like a lived experience adds into that um, to do some sort of like updating your prize, um, which is, yeah, something that we're big on is, you know, continually updating or like something you were speaking about months ago, which was uh, like undervaluing the insider perspective and potentially like overvaluing that meta or outsider perspective. Um, yeah, so just something important to keep in mind. Um, so another fallacy, uh, Kat's favorite, shout out to Kat, the planning fallacy, (laughs) um, Kat's Linden's partner. (laughs) And, uh, so I think the planning fallacy, Kat is a human for anyone. (laughs) Oh, shout out to misogyny and patriarchy. (laughs) Kat is her own woman. Um, but the planning fallacy, I was actually just referring to like Kat isn't an like oh, a feline oh, animal right. yeah, for the record. Yeah, sorry. Cat, short for Catherine, a.k.a. Lyndon's partner. Um, so the planning fallacy is the fallacy that we tend to make plans based on the B 
best possible outcome or circumstances as opposed to the worst or like a more accurate um, set of circumstances or the more modal or frequent set of circumstances that you come across. So if we're planning on having dinner and I'm out running a bunch of errands, you know, I'm like, Lyndon, perfect. Um, I'll be home at six and dinner will be ready at seven. And, you know, it's five o'clock and I'm 30 minutes away and I've still got four other things to do. I'm planning on there being no traffic, me not running into a friend, me not needing to take a phone call or me not forgetting something from the shops and needing to run back. I am making a plan based on the best set of circumstances when in reality, when do we ever get the best set of circumstances? Sometimes for sure, but probably not all the time. More often than not, um, you know, you get a couple of red lights or you forget something and you need to go back. Um, and, you know, that's probably why people are late a lot of the time or miss out on commitments. Um, and we're sp- again, we're speaking from experience here. I'm late very often. <laughs> um, Lyndon also is <laughs> late very often. Um, but it's just such a, a really, really practical, uh, I guess, fallacy or bias to be aware of that can have some immediate and tangible differences in your life. Yeah, I like I love the planning fallacy. <laughs> like for for some reason I get visceral joy out of it and <laughs> pointing it out in others. Yeah. yeah like, like as Josh kind of hinted at, like it's now become like I literally like Kat will tell me her plans and I'll just say planning fallacy. Like <laughs> yeah. there's no way you're getting out of bed at six AM and gonna, you're not gonna be there by quarter yeah. past six. Um, so just, yeah, that's, that's become fun and funny for me, but like I get, I get a lot of kick out of the planning fallacy because it's, there's a lot of ideas spoken or there's often a tension between people talking about optimism is good. Like it's Mm. good to be optimistic. Mm. And because I think so much of that people are just like, people want to see others be optimistic. Mm. I feel like quite often people give. Uh, like they propose philosophies or theories just based on what they want to see in others. Mm. And I think it's part of this sort of um, like human tendency to manipulate the environment to like how we want it to be. Yeah. Um, But if we take a slightly more nuanced version of that, there are people propose that being an optimist is self-fulfilling. And in many cases that is true. Um, However, I think planning fallacy actually inverses that logic to some extent and we can see just what i'm getting at here and what gives me a kick is like there is no um like absolutely true theory or model or way to live that is useful in every situation like even Mm. being an optimist isn't the best for your Mm. experience of you know joy and welfare Mm. all the time because being optimistic about your planning means you'll tend like on average be more late than what you could be if you Mm. simulated some some amount of error into your planning task um and what i would also say is when you are overly optimistic about your plans your miscalibration of the amount of say pure random chance events that aren't ideal cause you to feel like the world is against you. Mm. 
um, I may have said a lot of that may have been a hard sentence to pass, but basically if you're really optimistic, then odds are, you know, random chance events are going to intervene at quite a significant extent and it's going to feel like the world is against you. Whereas if you're only a little bit over optimistic, then not that many random chance events have the ability to intervene that much and it doesn't feel like the world is that against you. Whereas if you take the pessimistic case, it can actually feel like the world is working with you. It's like, oh man, I actually planned to be there at 6.30 and I was there at 6. Like, that's a win. So there is mm. there is joy to be found in pessimism to some extent and there is pain to be found in optimism and mm. probably more or less of it depending on how optimistic or pessimistic you are. Mm. Do, you, do you think it's part of um, like this sort of, I wrote down the word solipsistic. So solipsism is sort of like the idea that it's egocentrism basically, like that you were speaking about before, that we are, from our first person experience, we are the center of our own universe. And it's very hard for us to abstract out of that and think of, you know, we talked about perspective taking a lot, um, but also just random events. Like it's very hard for us to think about one, counterfactuals, but two, the the effect of there being other people in the world and random things happening. Um, like, do you think it's part of that sort of, yeah, that solipsistic, egocentric way of thinking where it's like that's all we can really like conceptualize is just us going through the world and we don't really take into account for other people and other, or it's, it's a challenge to take into account other people's incentives and um, different barriers that are in place or random chance events. Yeah, I would definitely say that stems from an egocentric perspective. And I almost think every bias can be reduced to s- something mm. um, sprouting from egocentrism. Yeah. Um, you know, take confirmation bias like that, that yeah. reduces to egocentrism. Um, so, Again, I'll just link it. Like, this is why I think meditation can be so impactful. Like, Mm. one of the things that meditation really does just try to um, inoculate to, Mm. inoculate you to, is excessive egocentrism. Mm. So, I I would, I feel like if there's um, a single task that you could do to improve your rationality, it's not reading, thinking fast and slow. It's it's meditating. But anyway, yeah. um, or acid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> um, there was a point I was getting to, and now I have forgotten. Oh yeah, I think this just um, to reference Sam Harris again, who's clearly a you know a source of a lot of uh, knowledge and wisdom for for Josh and I and and many others. Um, though I would say like, this is kind of lateral point. Mm. We have a, like a really large source of idols and people we've drawn attention from and quite mm. a diverse range. We mm. tend to come back to many because like, as mm. you referenced a number of times, um, previous conversations, like some of these are, are somewhat, um, self-propagating conversations, but mm. you know, we'll very much talk about other people off air and they never seem to appear on yeah. air. That anyway, that's a, a side point. It's just something I've been thinking about when listening mm. back um, episodes back. But something that Sam Harris says, I think, that really captures like egocentrism for me is when you tell someone, say, 
Like, or you get frustrated because you're stuck in traffic or you tell someone you were late because you were stuck in traffic. It's like, mm. you weren't stuck in traffic. Mm. You are traffic. You Ooh. were traffic. That's funny. Yeah. Like, you are just, yeah. you were a car on the road. And mm. to someone else, you were the barrier. Yeah, you yeah, were yeah. the problem. Mm. And this is why I think you can get, you can get such a warped perspective of mm. the world if you only observe it from as if, like, from inside your own head. Mm. Like, if I'm only looking out at the world, you can get a really biased perspective. Mm. But I've got to try and see the world from what I can see of it and then try and imagine what it's like to see it from Josh's perspective Mm. as well. Yeah. Um, And not to make light of the point where I said acid, because, like, that was a genuine point that I was going to bring up, is because it is so hard to abstract out and try and conceptually think of someone else perspective in an accurate manner um because it is so hard to do that authentically or naturally that is where a a plant or a sub a substance can facilitate that um thought process or or open your eyes to um that being a possibility because it is again so hard to do it um just with your own uh your own cognitive um horsepower um, so, and I, and I think the, the beautiful thing about like psychedelics is that, and something that they've sort of mentioned in that book I was speaking about, the immortality key is that these effects can be so long lasting. Like there's the, the classic study where, um, people have a single dose of psilocybin, which is the active c- component of magic mushrooms. Um, and then for, you know, I think it's like the next f- six months, I believe. Yeah. But there's like... Um, you know, for, for maybe say six months, they'll say it was, um, still, still an extremely profound experience. And then say like two years and five years out, they'll say things like, um, yeah, they still have a lot of the, or they can still remember a lot of the effects. Uh, sorry. I was thinking of a different study. I was thinking of the measurement of trade openness. So there was, there was like long, so from like, Personality is very vague and difficult concept to study. Um, Personality psychology is, Mm. yeah, pretty complex and to some degree, not unfounded isn't the right word, but Mm. it's just, it's a complex web to disentangle. Mm -hmm. And personality is almost defined by what actually doesn't change about people Mm. over time. Mm. And there's been very few things that can found that can alter someone's personality. It's like, look, I I get that you want to be CEO or you want to be a stand-up comedian or you want to be this, but your personality just isn't set up to be that way. No matter what you do, you probably, you know, I couldn't turn myself into an extrovert, odds are, Mm. no matter how much I tried. Um, However, there was... There was a study that basically showed that, um, and again, it's been a little while since I've read um, the source directly, but a single dose, I believe, of psilocybin increased someone's um, scores of trait openness, the openness, the the personality trait, um, up to six months later Mm. so that's why i referenced six months sorry Mm. and just that like you were speaking about the reflection of an individual on experience Mm. 
whereas I was speaking about the alterations in someone's personality. Mm. Um, yeah. And typically openness is something that's considered um, a good personality trait to possess yeah, for the record. Yeah. Uh, there have been a number of studies um, utilizing psilocybin um, it, on addiction, um, but the one I was sort of referring to was, I think, based on existential crises um so people dealing with um like life-threatening illnesses typically cancer and things of that nature um dealing with this really sort of heavy existential crisis and fear of death um that psilocybin uh, that one experience really helped them i guess like reconcile that and uh, they think th the reason for that, and this was from like self-reporting, um, it lined up with theories that because it is like an ego dissolution experience where um, like we were just speaking about, we're stuck in our own head and we're stuck in our own world and we're like, uh, we're solipsistic again, it's egocentric. So that's all we can really conceptually um, deal with and operate in unless you've made these active efforts to try and get out of your own head. Um, and yeah, again, psilocybin helps facilitate that. Um, but yeah, I think that's all I wanted to say about it anyway. Yeah. So we'll try and put a pin in this um, relatively quickly. Maybe we should just say we will do an episode on psychedelics and yeah, other drugs we definitely um, will. in the future. Cause it, it clearly, um, bubbles up but it percolates up and it's something that we sort of reference subtly or make a joke <laughs> about or more explicitly but it is yeah. something that we think is important and yeah. um interesting so we will do an entire episode on that in the future but mm -hmm. uh i i just want to highlight that link that you did touch on there where there there is a link between say um something kind of spiritual or mystic or whatever you want to talk about whatever you want to classify, say, meditation and psychedelics and um, all that in with and rationality. Mm. Because by having that um, perspective-altering experience and mm. those people making peace with their terminal illnesses, mm. they could more freely enjoy that last period of their life. Yeah, And it kind of links back to that um, I think that I, I don't know where the idea actually started from, um, but not that it always matters. <laughs> it's just my own personal habit of yeah. um, saying where something started. Uh, it, I think it was the Dalai Lama or Gandhi or something like that mm. that popularized it, but just like that there is no point in worrying about something mm. because if it's not going to occur, mm. then there's no point worrying about it. Mm. And if it is going to occur, then why worry? Because yeah, you're just doubling your pain. Like, it's just going to occur and mm. why make yourself in... Why put yourself in some kind of pain slash anxious state mm. even prior to it happening? So, in that sense, what I'm getting at is like these psychedelic experiences helped someone live that last period of their life in a more rational, normative manner mm. where they could push the... Or like disengage from the pain and the anxiety of the, oh, I am going to die. Mm. And they could just live and enjoy and experience more um, positive emotions for that remaining time. 
Yeah. Helps people, helps get people into that circle of influence mindset, which is probably like another mental model, which is really only thinking about or concerning yourself with that which you can influence. And everything you can't plausibly influence, it makes no sense to worry about it. Um, I guess the little bit of nuance you could add to that is that for things like social causes, there's strength in numbers and, um, you know, it is perhaps like a bit of a nihilistic way of thinking to think that what can one person do when, you know, the sum of the parts are greater than, or what is it? The, yeah, the, the, the whole is greater the than the sum, sum of the parts. The sum is greater than the sum of its parts or something. <laughs> the whole is greater the whole than the sum <laughs> of its parts. Yeah. Um, but yes, just speaking to strength in numbers. Um, but we'll move on. Revealed preferences is one that I love um, because... I think, again, probably everyone is uh, is a victim to stating their preferences, but say like acting out another, a different preference. So revealed preferences is just, I, I guess it's an economic idea. It um, started in economics and it just states that um, often our actions are different to the preferences that we speak about. And this is due to incentives so we spoke about incentives mattering um, or like different externalities so when I do something there is uh, an effect or a second order effect or a lateral effect to that action it's not just me going from A to B there's some sort of maybe like third party transaction occurring because of it Um, or like we've spoken about many a time, um, the no such thing as, uh, resolutions, there's only trade-offs. Um, so revealed preferences is a very good one. And another good quote we've spoken about is like, um, people act out their values or like people vote with their feet. These are all really good, uh, concepts that are speaking to, you know, action being a lot more indicative of someone's values than their words. And that's something that we are massive on, especially um, as it relates to altruism and how we started this podcast and the things we spoke about at the start. Um, And yeah, this is a massive hobby horse of mine where like against people that just speak about things or, or police language or say you should do this or you should do that rather than like, actually trying to make a tangible difference Um, and that's what we're doing with trying to do this podcast and automated donating and trying to eat less animals and everything that I'm trying to do is I guess like centered around trying to actually be a better person and improve the world in a tangible manner rather than just like speaking about them. Yeah I would say I hope that goes for me I know you were speaking more about your own um, personal sort of efforts there as well but yeah that is definitely something that josh and i both care about and we were just joking um off air that i have zero interest in morality but that was that was just a joke um i yeah i don't need to explain that Mm -hmm. um but yeah this is something that we both feel super strongly about and oh man like this is just one of those things that drives me insane about social media Mm. like you can be the thing that drives me insane is that in my judgment, I've seen say like actively bad people um, 
portraying themselves and like actually capturing people's beliefs that they are good people. Like mm. it's not just they're an average person yeah. positioning themselves as a good person. It's like genuinely bad or hurtful people sort of yeah. um, carrying a good reputation. And that's, to me, that that still speaks to the revealed preferences. It's kind yeah. of like the distinction between talk and behavior and yeah another thing that just something that i always think about and i always have these um maybe this does relate to the entire conversation but one of the ways that i create mental models for myself is through alliteration like i have a a massive alliteration 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 yeah so that's um the like rhetorical device of Mm. uh using like starting a bunch of say words with the same vowel sound or like same say sound oh, like yes, yes. um or just yeah like you say a bunch of words that start with a and yeah. that sort of that weighs on you in some kind of way yeah. um and yeah just generally speaking wordplay is something that really interests me i'm not quite sure why but i get a personal kick out of it so i've found it useful to try and create mental models through wordplay. And one of the ways that this revealed preferences um, model sits top of mind for me is because I always think execution over ambition. Mm. Because like people talk about how it's so good to be ambitious. Mm. but And that's why I actually said like... Um, Josh and our friend James, who we refer to on the podcast as Sedge, and also in real life as Sedge, <laughs> um, like they were going to an event the other day, and like they were sort of running late. But I was like, oh, no, I've, like I've got to get in that habit of just like telling people when telling people good things, not just keeping mm. it to yourself. I sort of like took that moment to say Sedge that like I think the world of him and lots of good mm. things, and I said to him, I was like, because you like Sedge is an executor. Like he just executes. Mm. He doesn't go around talking about about his big ambitious plans yeah. and because we pat people on the back for their mm. grand plans. Mm. But Sedge just gets up every day and like gets a little bit better, builds something yeah. just a little bit better than what he True. had the day before. And that's revealed preferences for mm. me. And mm. um, the other person I'll shout out to is Ryan Solomon friend and slash listener of the podcast um and i would say the same goes for him um yeah i think you can only really judge people and revealed preferences as well Mm. over long periods of time Mm. so you do want to or unless it's a pinnacle moment or yeah there's lots of caveats there but Mm. yeah i'll stop yeah Um, there's quiet achievers i guess is another way to put it yeah i i just i have a lot of sympathy for, or maybe empathy for quiet achievers. Like mm. there are people that do so much good in the background yeah, and who don't go and try and claim the credit for it. And that leaves so much credit to be claimed by people who haven't actually spent the time in the background doing good things. Yeah. Shout out to Quiet by Suzanne Cain, um, a book largely about introversion. Um, yeah, that was actually one of my favorite books uh, of the year when I read it a couple of years ago largely because it just gave a lot of, um, I guess, categorization or um, justification to some of these feel- feelings that I've had that I didn't know how to put into words or, or that I felt that I was weird or I was wrong for 
having all these like introverted tendencies like i'd i'd known what introversion and extroversion was and i'd understood that spectrum um but i guess i didn't understand to what extent or the idea that it had like physiological underpinnings and there's something super comforting about physiological underpinnings or causes i guess like we've spoken about to know that it's not just like oh it's not just the way i'm choosing to be or um that that is sort of the way i am um and i don't necessarily need to stress so much about trying to change it to fit into the society it's like acceptance it's liberating yeah i would um i would definitely underline um how good quiet was i i really enjoyed it so that's not just josh's single person perspective um yeah, I think you actually know. I was, I had a massive crush. I still do. <laughs> Susan Cain for a while. I was like, I read the book and I was yeah. like, oh, wow, this is good. And then heard her speak and I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, her yeah. voice is just beautiful. Yeah, it was it before I'd even seen her. And yeah, so anyway, gentle. some physical um, features as well, which is great. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, all jokes aside, um, I, I did want to link that back to survivorship bias mm. because that mm. was a clear example for me where when I read the book and I was like, I had the exact same experience as Josh. I was like, oh my God, there's a world of people out there who th- actually think in a similar way when I thought I was the only one. But it's just like, if on average, the media is um, populated by extroverts and people who yeah, want to be heard and definitely. seen speaking, then... Of course, you're going to mostly hear extroverted ideas. And this was just another one of the little causal balls that made me think about um, starting a blog and then eventually starting Mm. a podcast. And just Mm. so, yeah, shout out to Susan Cain for being a bit of an inspiration there um, for no doubt both of us. Um, But uh, yeah, to me, that just highlighted how easily we can succumb to something like survivorship bias and just. Yeah consistently reapply these lenses that we're we're speaking about um it's Mm. it's good practice sometimes you'll you'll misapply but just the the more ready you have um the or the more available you have them and the more Mm. readily you can apply them consistently over the time i think just the better you get at drawing them up and applying the right one Mm, the the point that the last point i'm going to make about quiet was which what you sort of touched on about how we're living in this extroverted uh dominant society where uh, to get ahead in the society that we're living in it seems like you have to be quite an extroverted person or like maybe a better way to put it is that um extroverted extroversion or qualities of extroversion seem to hold more currency in today's market labor market and society Um, and it very well could just be because the loudest people are getting heard and it's all about attention these days Um, but yeah again to be like somewhat of contrarian there's something there's something to the quiet achievers and the people that are just doing doing the do without really speaking about it Um, yeah yeah, comparative advantage. Yeah, yeah. Which we, which we, I don't think we need to touch on that one today. Um, but t- t- 
what I was going to... Oh, yeah. So, free rider problem comes into, I think, revealed preferences a little bit or morality where, um, you know, the free rider problem is essentially that, you know, in a group dynamic or with multiple agents um, all working towards one goal, you know, there's going to be that person not not lifting their weight. Um, So, with a bunch of people carrying or dragging a car, there's going to be some person just with their hand on the rope walking alongside it without actually exerting any effort. Um, And this isn't necessarily to say that this is a bad person. It's just the the situation or the context in place, um, it is very appealing to be lazy and we want to be lazy. And so they have that opportunity to do that. Um, So they are going to exploit that. Um, and then in relating it back to morality, um, I think there's going to be people that take on the mindset that I don't need to do any, like I don't need to donate or I don't need to, uh, care about animals or stop eating animals because other people are doing it. Um, and yeah, to talk about the comparative advantage, I guess this is the other side of that coin where, I think it, it makes sense for people that do genuinely care about it or have a certain um, affinity to care about these things to do it because there are going to be some people that um, genuinely don't care and aren't going to do anything. Um, and then there's also going to be people that just exploit the free rider problem where they see a bunch of other people doing it so they don't have to worry about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, what that just highlighted to me was how just fundamentally how biases work like we can we can slice something however we want it so that we come to the conclusion that we want like with the with the free rider problem as you kind of um mentioned it'd be like oh i you know i don't have to stop eating animals because others are doing that or if no one else is doing it and be like, well, well, I'm not going to stop because no one Mm. else is stopping. Mm. Mm. Like whichever side of the coin you look Mm. at, you're just like, well, I don't have to stop eating animals. Yeah. And that is, that is what sort of characterizes biases when that, that bottom line is already written. And then you just go through the reasoning process of Mm. arriving at the conclusion that you want. Mm. Um, I did just want to backtrack one quick second. I noted something down about revealed preferences when you were talking about people, you know, espousing one preference but acting out another preference or like the particularly on like the good and bad person thing. So like, you know, I'm I'm all about women's rights but then at home, you know, I treat my partner like shit or for example. Uh, an important point to highlight is that intentions come into it. So I think a lot of the time people do genuinely have good intentions with their stated preference with their stated preference they have a good intention but i guess it's once you add into it all the other the noise um or you know barriers or incentives or things that come up in world in the world when the revealed preference is different to the stated preference maybe it's not deception always or maybe most of the time it's not deception uh perhaps the person did have good intentions all along it's just that once they encountered a barrier um, or, you know, an incentive, they succumbed to it. So there, there was a shift is what I'm getting at. 
they didn't always plan on they didn't state this preference but always secretly plan on doing this other thing um, they genuinely thought they were going to get up 6am and I think that's what we were speaking about with the planning fallacy um, they genuinely thought that they were a good person until there was $10 on the counter that they could just take without anyone knowing yeah that's there's yeah nothing more for me to add than Josh just demonstrated Hanlon's razor in real time for everyone. So shout out to last week. Yeah, shout out to last week. <laughs> shout out to Philosophy AU. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, just as a reminder, Hanlon's razor being um, don't explain something by malice if it can be explained by ignorance. Mm. Yeah. Um, I want to move on to one um, one that I think that I coined which is the right side of history fallacy so this is like an argumentative did you ben shapiro (laughs) (laughs) shout out to ben shapiro's book the right side of history um like an argumentative fallacy that i see happen all the time to almost like give this pseudo weight behind a wacky idea um so you know if i say that like oh you know i've got this theory that um, at night, trees just go back into the ground. Th- then I tell that to someone, they're like, oh, dude, that is crazy. But then I'm like, oh, well, you know what? At some stage, people thought the earth, people thought the earth was flat. And what do you know now? You don't want to be on the wrong side of history is what they're speaking to. Like you can literally put that preface on any wacky statement because... And I'll make a genuine shout out to a book called The Theory, The Structure of Scientific Revolution, sorry, by Thomas Kuhn, which talks about um, paradigm shifts in thinking throughout the scientific or throughout, I don't know, would it be fair to say throughout the scientific revolution? Yeah. 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 yeah sorry. I got to <laughs> hold my microphone up to me. Yeah. Um, Post-enlightenment? Is that kind of... Yeah. So, basically, throughout the 20th century, I think most of... Okay, I won't even bother trying to timestamp it. There have been paradigm shifts in the way that the scientific community specifically, but also in the general zeitgeist, thinks about things in general. What I mean by a paradigm shift is um, everyone operating and thinking and practicing in one way of thinking, uh, and then there's like so what happens is there's anomalies that build up so there's experiences or data points that don't fit that narrative they don't fit within that paradigm and then once that there's a lot or once there's enough of these anomalies that build up there requires a paradigm shift so we shift out of this current way of thinking into a different way of thinking that helps explain those anomaly experiences or those inconvenient data points um, that Uh, that don't fit into that previous paradigm. So because we've gone through that structure of scientific revolutions, as the book is called, um, it's very easy for everyone to say comments like, oh, well, once we all thought the earth was flat or, you know, once fill in the book, fill in the gap, therefore that allows room for any, any possible idea Um, to be possibly true which I guess is like technically the case but it's it's just such a uh, an empty way to make an argument where you're not really adding evidence you're just 
all you're really saying is there's it's a, a non sequitur. Yeah, yeah. You're saying like there's a slight chance in the world that this could be possible. Therefore, you know, that adds weight to my argument. Yeah. So what I was um, getting at there, and I completely agree, and this is something that has been something I've come across before and sort of had a similar name or description in my own mind. And I think that's what um, it's a good label you've given it there. Um, the right side of history fallacy, because it's something that the, what I'm getting at there is like, it's definitely more than just you who's experiencing yeah, it. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. I'm not trying to no, devalue no, um, you know, your coining of it. <laughs> I'm trying to say, that is definitely something I've experienced. Yeah. Um, but what I was uh, getting at there with Josh and just to sort of explain the implicit knowledge in the room is non sequitur fallacy is... Non sequitur is Latin for it does not follow, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, yeah. Something to that, at yeah, least something of that nature. <laughs> um, <laughs> shout out to of that nature. <laughs> uh, yeah, so pe- that is a structure of fallacious reasoning that people use is presenting evidence that doesn't Mm. actually, um, or trying to, um, reason to a conclusion that doesn't follow from the evidence they presented. So someone saying that, you know, people previously believed the earth was flat. That doesn't actually, then the conclusion that therefore Mm. trees do go back into the ground at night does not logically follow mm. from that evidence. Yeah. So that is um, the being on the the right or the wrong side of history fallacy is a variant of the non sequitur. Mm. So yeah, good stuff by Joshy. <laughs> um, I think uh, we're probably getting close to the end. I think. Did you have any that you that sprung to mind that you wanted to bring up? Any more? Um, no, not necessarily. Like, it's just, I think as we found out today that we can really speak, (laughs) we can go back and forth on like a single bias for, um, you know, quite a long time. So I was pretty happy with what we've covered. Um, maybe we'll finish on the, um, you know, putting that sharp sword back on ourselves. So what have you like in, you know, understanding all this and understanding our biases, um, and utilizing all these mental models that we've spoken about um, and having a lot of self-awareness and humility, hopefully. Uh, like what's something that you've... All right, I'll give you two options. What have you changed your mind about lately or in the last couple of years? And Or um, what's something that you know, you've been wrong about? I guess it's kind of the same thing. I think I'm actually horrible at this question and I know that... that um, you know, almost reveals my my lack of, say, metacognitive skills in this area. <laughs> but, I, like, no doubt I've been wrong number of number of times. And I guess I was, I was, hopefully, obviously joking before, and I was like, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't been wrong. But yeah, yeah. I guess what I'm getting at is, from my own first person perspective, I'm just very much focused on incrementally updating in the right direction. I don't... Yeah, right. I do reflect a lot, but I don't categorize things as mistakes. If Because I guess what I'm getting at is I try to focus on what looks like the best option to me as it presents itself. Mm. And if I choose the best option as it presents itself, then I'm not going to reflect back on it and say, that was a mistake. 
Mm. Yes, I pro- I might have missed something along the way, but then I I guess I incrementally update with that information. Mm. Not, um, yeah. I, I guess I've just I've never really felt like I've had massive paradigm shifts. Yeah, probably because I try to embody that, um, that incremental, not categorical thinking. Like I spoke yeah. about last week by Thomas yeah. Sowell. Um, what about like a perhaps like a scientific finding that has surprised you? Or I would definitely say like I've had a number of say counterintuitive experiences and I yeah. think just getting into economic and like definitely reading soul is yeah. an example of yeah, true. very counterintuitive findings. Oh, well, I didn't expect that to be true. Um, or at least that to be the way the economic evidence is currently presenting itself. Mm. Um, I think there's a lot of, I was going to say there's a lot of um, counterintuitive findings about physics, but then I don't hold strong judgments about physics. Mm. Um, again, again, I feel, like as I said, I feel like I'm a bad person mm. to speak about in this area. Maybe if you start, yeah, I can speaking, go. I've got then. one top of mind. Um, one that I've changed my mind on is I don't know that. Again, like I didn't hold like massively strong beliefs, but I, there was a notable shift in the way I perceived this concept. So this is the patriarchy. Uh, I guess when I started hearing this term being thrown around and, you know, did the, albeit not massive amount of research regarding it, but look to the people that I trust intellectually to um, shed some light on the issue in a hopefully objective and level-headed manner, uh, I did have my reservations about the concept of the patriarchy. However, I think, which has changed, since changed, and I think that is just due to the way that I was perceiving it and just um, perhaps like looking at it in a straw man sense. So my concept of the patriarchy previously was just that it was like a zero-sum game between men and women and that men are dominating the world and that men are tyrannical over women and that men are winners and women are losers. That was how I perceived people talking about the patriarchy. So when I would hear someone say, and we've got to deal with the patriarchy and, you know, this is obviously due to the patriarchy in my head, that was the calculation that I did or that's how their words were digested in my head. Um, But I think it was... Probably a couple of people, but honestly, um, this lady, Jess Hill, in that book that I just read recently, See What You Made Me Do, about domestic abuse, uh, where she had a really good explanation of the patriarchy, um, and just her approach in general in that book was phenomenal, um, just about showing both sides of it, um, because uh, she really highlighted that, and she wasn't the first to do it, and obviously not the only one, and I think, you know really switched on feminists um, and people talking about the patriarchy do actually do this, but they speak about the patriarchy um, being bad for both men and women, um, which is something that uh, really caught my attention because another part of it was, and I think this is an extremely common experience for men, another part of it was, well, hang on, you're talking about all this bad stuff for men, I genuinely hold myself to 
like to think of myself as a good person and I'm not dominating women and I am would call myself like a woman's advocate. Um, so I don't know what you're talking about. And then sort of had this, I guess, like immediate reaction aversion to the patriarchy or the concept of the patriarchy. Like I thought it was a house of cards or didn't believe it was a real thing. Um, but because they spoke about it being bad for both men and women, which upon reflecting and doing a bit more research, I think is the right way to conceptualize a patriarchy that it is not just men like dominating women and being, it's not a zero sum game. Men aren't the winners in society and women aren't the losers. It's equally bad for men having to compete for status by working 80 hours a week and trying to put on this facade of being this overly and overtly masculine man's man that is equally bad for the man. He's hamstrung to live in a society that he has to do that to gain status. Um, Well, obviously, it's bad for the woman as well because there's a lot of uh, negative effects that come along with it for them. So that is one that I've really, really come around to a lot lately. Um, There is still, I think, a lot of people, or at least from what I've encountered, uh, there are still people that talk about the patriarchy where it's in this men-hating way, fashion, where they say patriarchy is, you know, basically fuck all men, like um, it's men over women and men are successful and uh, there are still those people, but I think the people that speak about patriarchy in a more level-headed, objective manner, in a productive way, talk about it being, you know, a system that puts both men and women and the family at a loss. Yeah, that's phenomenal you brought that up. Um, I really, as soon as you started talking, I was like, I, I know where this is going, though some of the, I haven't heard you say that um, all of that before and I was immediately like oh I I should have mentioned that like and you you triggered that and that's definitely something that has been a shift in my own thinking Mm. and probably as no surprise um to either of us like you and I find that our thinking does shift in somewhat correlated ways Mm. um whether it's an echo chamber or it's probably probably in part an echo chamber and in part Mm. that we are causal factors in each other's mm. um, model of thinking. And yeah, I I certainly previously and probably still do, I can't mm. say I'm, yeah. you know, uh, completely have overcome the errors in my thinking, but definitely previously um, I have undervalued just basically mm. everything that you spoke about and one of the books that was eye-opening for me was simply like it's how many pages is this it's a tiny little book it's actually a transcript of a ted talk mm. it's 50 pages and they're tiny pages with massive spacing called we should all be feminists by i'm gonna <laughs> really butcher this name but chimamanda Ngozi adichie um but yeah, I would watch her TED talk. Um, mm. I think the book is probably a little, little better, but um, or just like I, the book resonated with me strongly, and just it spoke about the exact same thing mm. about not that it had to appeal, not that the patriarchy could only be a true concept if it was bad for men and women, mm. but just the level-headed nature of explaining something to both a man and a woman, yeah. rather than saying no 
you be quiet, man, you've had your chance. Because, you know, say maybe that's in part what explains um, our previous aversions to it is as someone who's born into the patriarchy and only, you know, in their mid-20s, it's kind of like, how can you tell me that I've, you know, my species of of men has been responsible for, for dominating for X amount of decades or centuries? I was kind of like, I just got here. Like what? What? What are we screaming and fighting about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But that, yeah, just there is a certain um, strand of feminist thought that really does spiral into humanist thought that I guess really mm. appeals to me. And I think um, this this Jess lady and mm. um, the writer of We Should All Be Feminists really appealed to us both and. Yeah, that is definitely something I've changed my thinking on. And one of the, sorry, the other examples that was big for me was um, was Steven Pinker in The Blank Slate when he speaks about mm. how, like, this seems ob- like so obvious. And I'm not thinking I thought completely opposite to this previously, but he just outlines that, like, men raping women is mm. bad for men and women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, obviously women yeah. getting raped, it's horrible. Like, that's... That is a very unideal thing. But if you are a man, say, competing in society fairly for mates, then men who rape are unfairly trying to shortcut and short-circuit the system of competing for um, reproductive chances. So, yeah, it's it's sometimes it just takes a different explanation and argument, and yeah. yeah, I'm sort of going around circles yeah, here, but no, I think that's this a very is good addition. Like, because I, I think the emphasis on like, it's not about like us wanting to get that victim status as well. Uh, it's more so about just the fact that you're looking at it from both sides, regardless of men or women. Just the fact that you seem to be taking somewhat more of an objective objective look at the problem. Um, and seeing who it affects regardless of their gender, um, which, yeah, we obviously have a bias for deep and critical thought. Um, but, yeah, I think... So you, you couldn't think of no other real, like, uh, mental shifts in your thinking that came up? Oh, there's definitely um, ones related to that, say... Um, I get just pro- tie, probably tying to progressive ideas. I would say just more yeah, generally speaking true. in recent years, I have given more weight to progressive ideas, which puts me somewhat against the typical um, series of events where people tend. So this is something that uh, Jonathan Haidt speaks about in, uh, I believe it's the, um, the Righteous Mind, sorry. I, I think it is The Righteous Mind um, where he speaks about people tend to become more conservative as they age. Yeah. And that's probably like unsurprising. Um, but something that I've found, at least just looking over the last 10 years, I've probably become more progressive in my thinking. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that that is quite a fundamental change I've found. And... Yeah, I, don't, I really don't see that as a bad thing. That's just... Yeah, it's like the quote, um, you know, show me a progressive... Show me a young conservative and I'll show you someone with no heart. Show me an old progressive and I'll show you someone with no head. 
and it's just sort of speaking to yeah this phenomenon that as people age we tend to take on more prog- uh, pardon me more conservative values and become more conservative politically and uh, I guess characteristically um, but yeah we'll probably finish up there I just wanted to finish up with a little quote-unquote joke <laughs> which is probably funny to five percent of people um, but it's yeah again to uh, t- put a bow tie on everything was said and mental models and cognitive biases um, so it, the quote is quote I'm not wrong it's just my mental models that are wrong, end quote. This is, yeah, somewhat of like an ongoing joke in, I don't know, the, the rationalist community, I guess. But I think there is actually a lot of profundity in that. Uh, it's speaking to changing our minds, what, we're just speaking, what we were just talking about, that you're not identifying with your ideas and your mental models, and which makes it a hell of a lot easier to be flexible and malleable and you know use um, updating and um, incremental changes in your thinking rather than categorical Um, because again you're not you're not threatening your identity you're not taking on an identity as a feminist or as a conservative or as a flat earther or as a Newtonian physicist you're taking on you know you are you and you hold these mental models and that they are adaptable so it it makes it so much easier to shift and update when you're not attaching your identity to these things um but yeah we is there anything more you want to say about that or to close off no maybe i will probably just go backwards in the conversation just (laughs) just a little bit and say i know you mentioned something in the when speaking about what your initial perceptions of the patriarchy were and I succumbed to the exact same thing and to kind of link this into today's conversation about biases is what we think and the conclusions we arrive at in our behavior I guess is is very much explained by neural processes and some neural circuits being stronger than others Mm. and when people are saying words or you're reading a book or, you know, you're you're watching a talk on, um, you know, someone talking about how you should be a feminist or the patriarchy, your mo- like there are circuits in your mind that are pulling basically the meaning of those words in certain directions. Like there are so many ways to interpret mm. what someone says, but your mind and those those circuits of thinking about the world in a certain way is pulling them um, to try and like fit into categories. And it's like, Mm. it's not quite the square peg in a round hole, but it's like, you've got this semi square shape and this semi round shape. And it's like, are they going to fit? Are they not going to fit? And what we do is we, yeah, we very much jump to conclusions. I I did this like literally last night with Kat, like (laughs) to, to reference Kat, like just, she was saying something and I, pretty much like didn't give her enough time to explain her thoughts i jumped mm. to conclusions and got annoyed that she was speaking about that thing and i was just like i just completely bad spiral of behavior and mindless yeah. thinking on my behalf yeah and again it just reminded me of like how much we want to put someone's words mm. into some kind of category that that fits our simplistic model of the world 
And that, that's not always to positively interpret them. Sometimes it feels good to get angry at someone and to mm. get your back up and say, oh, that's just another typical feminist talking about the patriarchy. Yeah. And just, yeah, again, relating to biases, we have these, what I'll call probably aggressive neural circuits that want to pull our thinking in certain directions. And we mm. need to just try and consistently get outside of that. Um yeah maybe check out the video series on the power and control wheel that was big for me um oh i forget his name but just that was just like a random thought off the top of my head about this um whole that's about domestic abuse um power and control wheel was that was that's a male speaking about it and he Mm -hmm. deals with um a lot helping to rehabilitate um Basically, men who have battered their wives. It's not Warren Farrell, is it? Uh, I don't recall the name. Um, but yeah, it was just just because I know like information like this is often hard to come by. So when someone explains it in a right way that actually clicks with, say, a, the population they're trying to speak to, mm. that um, I think that's important. So I just thought I'd mention that quickly. But yeah, that rounds out me for today. Beautiful. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining the conversation. If you would like to connect, please reach out through info at philosophyau.com. Thanks again and see you at the next episode.